Hello and welcome to Miked, the official podcast of St. Michael Catholic Church, Gastonia, North Carolina. I am your host and director of evangelization at this great parish, Shane Page. We're here at St. Michael. We are invested so that we might be transformed so that we can be fully the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm joined once again this week with the munificent Father Rossi. And there's a reason. There's a reason I use that word. <laughs> Well, we're back to talk about we're going to hear about it, aren't we? That's right. We're going to hear about some uh, munificence. Um, so uh, what, I, what I want us to talk about today, we're, 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 it's August, and we're getting close to the 15th, and you know what that means. I do. It's the day after the Feast of St. Maximilian Colby. It's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Which happens and to be the feast, the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Yes. Mary. And when I was little... I used to get all confused about the Assumption, the Assumption, the Annunciation, all these big A, a words, word. and yes. all, lots of letters, and it wasn't really clear on any of them. But That's today, right. we're going to hone in on... Yeah, why Catholics worship Mary. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> you mean why we don't. <laughs> exactly, why we don't. But I do, yeah. I do joke around with some of the people. Uh, I remember last year I had some fun when we talked about Mary and uh, our Becoming Catholic group, mm-hmm. you know, people who were seeking to become Catholic. And uh, and I said, you know, I don't understand why anybody thinks that Catholics worship Mary. And I would like pretend to be at her statue, and I would swing the, uh, the what what is it called? The, the, the incense. Thurible. Yeah, I would like swing the third. I was like, Light what are y'all candles. talking about? We don't worship a Mary in here, you know. But I understand. But we talked about how I can understand from one vantage point why it would look like to someone from the outside. That Catholics worship Mary, right. but once you break it down, you know, and really flowers and candles and yes, processions, processions, and statues, and kneeling in front of the statue and praying, and <laughs> yes, you know, right. And maybe we should get, we could get into that uh, some other time, but you know, it would make sense that we can't just she is as Saint Thomas Aquinas and many of the fathers understood because of the nature of her office as mother to the Savior, mother to the Son of God, she was united to the second person of the Holy Trinity substantially. We cannot place Mary on the same place as every other saint, although she is fully human like the saints. Um, She has to be elevated above, but she has to be below the adoration of God. So she's kind of between. I would use some kind of non-fancy schematic on the board like you would have to put mary kind of in between them so from those on the ground if you're looking up from the ground where she's elevated it looks like you're going up to worship but no actually we don't worship her but we hyper it's like a hyper dulia is what thomas aquinas called it a hyper veneration of her because of the nature of uh, her office as mother uh, to the to the word of god mm-hmm you follow me. I can tell you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I'm, I mean, that's what I believe. So I hope yes, our so listeners it, understand that. So, yes. Um, and there is a difference between Latreia and Dulia. And maybe some of our Catholic listeners have never really differentiated the two. Well, they're kind of scary words. Well, of course they are. Yeah. Yes. But we do this in, 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 in regular life. It's probably not the greatest analogy. But if you were to be in the room with um, a great dignitary, or maybe a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. You know, you can think of, they're soldiers, they're veterans, they're, they're people who served in the armed forces. Yes. Do they deserve some honor? Yes. Do we honor them in our country? Yes, we do. But there are some people among those soldiers, among those veterans, who achieved a level of honor higher than them, like a Congressional Medal of Honor mm-hmm. winner. 
we would not treat that person. We just don't do this in in practice as the same as just everybody else. Well, something else comes to mind just in family relationships, even more accessible. If you're privileged, even if you have a great grandparent still alive right now, when your great grandma walks in the room at Thanksgiving, you know, everyone, you know, great grandma's going to all get, rise. Grand, yeah. Great grandma's getting the best chair in the house. And, uh, she's going to be doted on like crazy and because she's the mother of your grandmother. And, and so there's that, uh, that relationship. I can just remember very little, uh, when I was little, my great grandma, two great grandmas were still alive. And, um, and I just around families now that have great grandparents still around, uh, it's a big deal. So, yes, but it doesn't mean you, no one's worshiping them, but it is, Higher is, form of reverence. Right. It's just a higher form of just giving them love and veneration. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, and and even honored in the news. You know, oh, this, you know this great grandmother. She's 103 or something, and mm-hmm. uh, people want to write a story about them or put them on the news. And uh, so there's just a hyper uh, attention given to them. Yes, I was speaking uh, just last week with a uh, pastor local in this area. He's uh, in a Presbyterian church, and he asked me the question, how do I talk to my flock? Because we're curious about Mary's treatment and Catholicism. What, what do you mean by venerate? We don't quite understand. How would you explain that to someone like me uh, and to other uh, non-Catholics for whom veneration just seems to be very foreign? I said, well, and, and, and what I'm getting ready to say, I mean, you can't, it's not a great parallel and there are a lot of differences here. But I said something along the lines of, think of it this way, that in many ways, we treat Mary and the Catholic Church the way some Protestant circles treat the Bible. Um, like, and I said to him, have you ever seen a Protestant worship service where the pastor holds the Bible above his head and says, because I, I know of someone who does this every single Sunday, we we are we are subject, subject to this book, we are servants of this book, we... All held aloft, they're, they're saying like this kind of creed to this this book, the Bible. And I would say, well, to to someone who's never seen that before, we could say to you, you're worshiping the Bible. And you would say, what? Oh, no, we don't worship the Bible. We highly venerate it, though. Of course, why do you highly venerate it? Because it mediates God's word to us. Mm-hmm. And I said, yep. And that's why we hold the Bible in esteem. You know, even in our homes, we don't just draw in it. Right. You know? And then I said, well, what about the person who mediated the word of God as a person? So she's there. You know, she is the mediator of the true word of God as a person. So that's where they are. And he seemed to be like, okay, I think I, I see what you mean. Yeah. Because we could be accused of worshiping the Bible, but we clearly don't. You're being accused of worshiping Mary when clearly you don't. And so that's why I've always kind of said that to Mary, and by the way, I don't know if you caught this, we're going to talk about the assumption of Mary. <laughs> that's our topic for the day. And, um, and I just, I think I lost my train of thought, but that Mary is a sacred vessel. She is the living sacropagina is what I have, I've called the her. The holy page. She's the holy page because as a person, you know, the Bible mediates the word of God written she mediates the word of God in the flesh. Right. The page mediates the words are printed on. Yes. The words are printed on the page. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we'll talk about uh, the Assumption of Mary because we're, we're close to its uh, the annual Holy Day of Obligation uh, for the Catholic faithful. And, and a little tr- trace it back to like where, where did this come from? 
And why does it matter so much to us? It is the fourth Marian dogma. There are four Marian dogmas that the church has pronounced. I have them right here. The first one, uh, Mary, Mother of God. That was pronounced and uh, defined in Ephesus, Council of Ephesus, 431. Mm-hmm. Uh, her perpetual virginity, she was always virgin, before, during, and, and after. after birth. And that was uh, defined at the Synod of Milan, which preceded uh, the Council of Ephesus in 389. And then uh, the most recent would be the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1854 mm-hmm. from Pope Pius IX. And then the dogma of the Assumption of Mary, body and soul into heaven, which was defined by Pope Pius the Twelfth in 1950. So, gosh, the uh, many many of our listeners, perhaps people in the parishioners, they can remember when that was pronounced. Uh, dogma. Sure. We, you and I, we were not born right. That's uh, yet, But here, here we are. And what I want to say right off the bat that we could talk about is all of the Marian dogmas are interrelated. If you pluck on one thread the dogmatic thread, and pull one away, the rest of them all fall apart. Sure. So the doctrine, dogma of the assumption really is it arises out of mother of God, perpetual virginity, and clearly the immaculate conception. Any comments? I would totally agree with you on that. They're all related. <laughs> they, they are. Yeah. And uh, Pope Pius Twelfth, in his uh, d- definition, which is called, what I called Father Rossi, can you pronounce this? Munificentissimus Deus. Is mm-hmm. that right? Sounds Munificent good. God or generous God. But he says uh, in paragraph four that the privilege of the assumption has shown forth in new radiance since our predecessor of immortal memory, Pius IX, solemnly proclaimed the dogma of the loving mother of God's immaculate conception. These two privileges are most closely bound to one another. Hmm. They follow logically from each other. Christ overcame sin and death by his own death. And one who through baptism has been born again in a supernatural way has conquered sin and death through the same Christ. Yet, God does not will to grant to the just the full effect of the victory over death until the end of time has come. And so it, it is that bodies of even the just are corrupted after death. And only on the last day will they be joined. But Mary, uh, she, by an entirely unique privilege, completely overcame sin by her immaculate conception. And as a result, she was not subject to the law of remaining in the corruption of the grave. And she did not have to wait until the end of time, like us, for the redemption of her body. So it was shortly after the doctrine of the dogma of the immaculate conception was uh, defined that you started to have, and we'll get into this, uh, a petition to the Holy Father to define the, uh, the dogma of the assumption as well. Mm-hmm. Right, which is the result of immaculate conception. That's right. And of course, what, did, what is the fruit of sin according to the scriptures? The fruit of sin is death. But our listeners, listeners may not know what the immaculate conception is all about. That's another big well, collection of words, right? Quickly <laughs> define that for us. Yeah, go ahead, Father. Tell I mean, us. she was conceived without uh, original sin, any stain of sin. Uh, never, no sin touched her ever in her existence and the Lord preserved her by a singular grace preserved and protected her from uh, having the um, the soul be affected by original sin mm-hmm. and its effects right so she's spotless immaculate means spotless you know we say oh that room's immaculate the car we say this all the time when we look at material things oh the house is immaculate the car is used but the interior is immaculate meaning clean without blemish without spot and so she is that and so 
God protected her. She didn't do that for herself. It was a great gift to protect the new temple that would house the Son of God, and the Lord cannot dwell where sin dwells, so she had to be completely pure, uh, white, clean, as it were, um, like a white robe, as we say in Revelation, washed clean, that she was saved from original sin and by, by way of preservation. Mm-hmm. So, through the merits of Christ. Right. So yes. Christ saved her in a unique way. We are saved from original sin through baptism. Yes. Uh, and then one analogy, analogies always fall short, but with sin, original sin, it's basically, oh, we all fell in the pool and we're rescued out of the water, the water being, you know, sort of original sin. Um but Mary never fell in. There was God protected her from from even going into that that pool, you know. So there was still was an it still is an act of God. And it was for what purpose did He preserve her so that she could become mother mm-hmm. to the to the incarnate Word? That from her immaculate human nature, the Word could assume an immaculate human nature. Right. But I think one thing we can say too, and uh, Doctor Ed Sree points this out in his book, is. Mary's not the first Immaculate Virgin. Eve was. Eve was the first woman to exist without original sin, without sin and a virgin, uh, but she fell. So that's now we have another virgin who's totally sinless, and that's Mary. Yeah. And you've got to connect it to Eve, and it makes more sense to say, well, God did create a woman without sin once before. It was Eve. Yeah, and she was a virgin when she rebelled against the Lord mm-hmm. and disobeyed his word. And that's what even uh, you find this early on, especially through the writings of St. Irenaeus. Mm-hmm. You know, through a, through a virgin's disobedience, sin came into the world. And now through a virgin's obedience comes the redemption from sin. Just a beautiful, I remember being, when I first uh, was exposed to this, how blown away I was with this parallel of Mary as the new Eve. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, we, the church fathers see her as that. Yes, and and one of the things that I I get passionate about is that so often we can say, well, Immaculate immaculate Conception, that just seems far-fetched. That just seems too extraordinary. I can't get my mind around that. Actually, from the vantage point of heaven, and correct me if I'm wrong, from the vantage point of heaven, to be immaculate is normal. God did not create us to be sinners. Right. It's what normal looks like. God intended humanity not to contract the stain of original sin. He, he intended us to be immaculate. To be holy and blameless in, in his, his sight. Yes, so that, and that's it, where we're headed. We're all headed towards, uh, you know, through, for us, it's going to be through mortification, purification, and penance to become immaculate in nature. So and we can, that reading from St. Paul is in the Mass for the Immaculate Conception that we should be holy and without blemish, holy without blame, mm-hmm. that God intended that for all humanity. So Mary exemplifies what God's plan from humanity has always been. I never intended you to be with sin. Right, and which means then that Mary, like her son, and because of her son, she was a truly human, human being. Right, she was the most human. She was the most human. Now, our Lord Jesus, uh, he, he, he assumed a human nature, but he was a, he's a divine person. That's right. Mary is a human person, and she's the most fully human human being who has ever lived because she was without sin. Well, I said she's the most fully human since Eve's fall. Yeah. So how do we, so what does this have to do with the assumption then? Well, it means then if we were not created, if, if we were not created to be sinners, which means we were not created to die in corruption, 
to have our bodies and our souls separated from each other, then it follows, and this is what you see, and Pope Pius XII will get into this, what you see in our tradition is that then it follows, if, 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 if Mary was without sin, then the effects of death should not redound to her. She should not suffer corruption and decay. Uh, she should be preserved from that. Uh, body and soul the way she was preserved from lapsing into sin in the first place and that's she, about the and summary so then that's the preservation then the preservation from original sin clear in the singular grace of the immaculate conception reveals another singular grace that she that her body is free from the corruption and decay of the tomb because she was preserved from original sin so at her passing from earthly life and now the eastern church has the dormition of mary which is the great sleep of Our Lady, so people say, "Well, did Mary die?" You know, so well, there was a point where her earthly life came to an end, mm-hmm. and then she was translated, taken up. You know, to be so Mary's body is not buried anywhere. I mean, she is in heaven, body and soul, with her son uh, as queen, uh, because that's who she is. She's the queen of heaven. She's a new ark, and she is seated uh, by her son as the queen mother, which we see in uh, the Old Testament. And Samuel with Bathsheba and Solomon when, uh, you know, Solomon enters, she enters Solomon, gives her uh, reverence and a chair, a throne is brought in for Bathsheba to sit on mm-hmm. next to the king. And the king basically gives um, uh, the, you know, the greatest portion of his realm to the queen mother. And the, the queen mother is the queen in, in ancient Israel is not the wife of the king. She is the mother of the king. So um, the line of David, there's many queen mothers. Some of them were terrible. Uh, And so uh, we have our queen mother, Mary, who is in heaven. And she's queen because she gave birth to the king. It was Jesus Christ. That's right. And And all through the merits of Jesus is Mary honored in this way. So how can she be in heaven, body, and soul by the power of God? The Lord has done this. And so um, she's there now, body and soul. Which is what normal looks like from the vantage point of eternity. We were not created to be without our bodies. Right. And, of course, we say every, every, every Sunday Mass in the Creed and on other days we believe in the resurrection of the body, that we, too, are awaiting the time when our, our souls will be reunited with our corrupt, deceased bodies, and we will have bodies like the Lord's body, body and soul. Mm-hmm. And she is the first fruit of the promise of resurrection for all of us. Right. We will never be queen of heaven. Right. We will never be able to participate in her privileges. But her nature, now, that's our destiny. Mm-hmm. And so this is like the assumption of Mary is the promise. It's the, it's the down payment. It's the promissory note that what I've done for her already, I, I'm going to do for you. Mm-hmm. It'll be different. You know, you will have to suffer the death, right. which are the wages of sin. Right. But you shall be redeemed and restored. Right. So it's, it's great hope. Okay, so I've done a little bit of research on this. All right. About a dogma. First of all, what is a dogma? Sounds pretty serious. It does. You're so dogmatic, Father. <laughs> you know, we have such a negative connotation. It is. It is. It really Doctrinaire is. Yeah. and dogmatic. But I know dogmas we can just make up, right? The Pope can just... Yep, exactly. I was going to say, how this dogma, happened right? is that Pope Pius XII woke up one day and said, I think today's the day. <laughs> Today's the day. <laughs> I haven't proclaimed a dogma ex cathedra, so why not today? Why not today? So, no, that's not what a, a pope cannot do that uh, in any place. So, I don't know. How would you define a dogma versus a doctrine? Well, that's a good question, and I have to say that's a little—that's not so easy for me 
to explain because they get used interchangeably, but it, it seems that the dogmas are divinely revealed truths uh, that are unchanging, that are already known, that the church declares as divinely revealed and protects an already revealed truth. So it's not, oh, now we know Mary's in heaven by and soul. It's that we have believed as the church. The church says this is dogma, which means it's solidified and planted as an immovable pillar, that, it's, it, that it must be upheld without question. Uh, yeah, meaning we, we can learn and question why we understand it, but it means it's not okay to embrace Catholicism and say Mary's not in heaven body and soul. I think she's buried somewhere, and you know, or I don't embrace the Immaculate Conception. You know, you said there were uh, four Marian dogmas, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and then a, a doctrine is uh, church teaching, uh, which uh, deepens and helps articulate what we already understand. So, uh, doctrine would explain dogma. Wouldn't yes. That right? you know? Okay. That, no. No. You're absolutely right. I mean, a dog. All dogmas began as doctrines, which means they've always been with the church. They were believed by the church. But a dogma, how I've understood it, and this is from uh, Saint John Newman. I'm playing on his idea of the development of doctrine. They are doctrines that have come to maturity mm-hmm. and clarity. Well, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Maturity and clarity, sort of uh, like a, 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 a fine wine. Yes, fermenting, and it's now it's time to pop the cork on right. this. And so, know. because one of the things that Pope Pius XII does is he quotes Vatican One. Uh, so we're which Vatican Council? Vatican One, and he says this, and this the was first the Vatican Council. Yes, exactly. Well, this is the this is we the only council. hear about the second Vatican. Well, isn't council this the Council of Vatican One, Father, that uh, defined papal infallibility? It absolutely did. Okay. Well, one of the things he does, Pope Pius, in this uh, this bull. Is say, well, I don't know if this is a bull, but in his definition, the Holy Spirit, quoting Vatican I, the Holy Spirit was not promised to the successor of Peter in such a way that by his revelation, they, meaning the popes, might manifest new doctrine. So no dogma can ever be new. Mm-hmm. No pope can ever pronounce something new. Right. And so uh, we need to really understand that today because there's a lot of frenzy believing that perhaps this might happen and saying, Jesus has promised that it won't it won't yes it, and but, that it also is not a possibility yes it's not it's never a possibility there's no such thing as new doctrine right everything comes out of the acorn of the apostolic tradition and that if, grows and through a, time and if a church leader or if the holy father tried to you know do that we would know it's it's just it's it's not it can't happen it can it can, it can happen can i have there was our alarm for the uh for the Angelos, speaking of Mary, I'll be right back. So, no, as we were saying, um, they can't uh, teach anything new. So, what does what does Vatican I say? What's the purpose of the of the successors of Peter? But so that by his assistance, the popes might guard as sacred, and might faithfully propose the revelation delivered through the apostles or the deposit of faith. In other words, I am by pronouncing something dogma, I am guarding. I am I am putting this what the church has always believed. And I am faithfully encasing it. You know, I am protecting it. Right. But I'm not proposing anything new. And that's right. just, I, that's well, something I did not know 20 years ago. Yeah, there's, a, there's an example of this, uh, and I may have the dates wrong, but I, there is a cathedral church in Covington, Kentucky. I think it's their cathedral. It's a cathedral of the Assumption, I believe. Now, that was, I think that church was established before the dogma was made. 
Oh, interesting. The so point that being, the point, point being, being that we they named a church in honor of Our Lady's Assumption before the dogma came about. Why would they do that? Well, right. Because they believed the church has always been believing that. So that goes to the next point. So I, I did a little uh, research on what uh, f- there are like five five criteria that must come together to make dogmas possible. Here they are. Number one, the consensus of the church, or what you just said. Has the church always believed this? Mm-hmm. Have the faithful always believed this, the consensus? Number two, scripture it has to be rooted in scripture, the written tradition of the church, the oral tradition of the church, the liturgical tradition of the church, and its interconnectedness with other dogmas. Mm-hmm. So we've already said that the four Marian dogmas are interrelated, but they're also coming out of the doctrine of the incarnation. So they're all, I mean, she was mother of God for the sake of the incarnation. So all the dogmas that the church has defined all bear a relationship with each other. You cannot pull on one thread without really unraveling everything else. So, so the, the, again, the, yeah, the liturgy being key there, I think that's a, something maybe we don't think of too much that the liturgy is teaching us our faith and really foundational that there's a lot in the liturgical prayers in the scriptures that are selected for the feast days the church is is telling us and teaching us about the faith in a unique way that there's a lot we know from the way the church has worshiped and so you would you want to pay very close attention to feasts where you're not clear on what they mean so this this would be okay if I'm not clear on the assumption, then I really need to key in on the liturgy of that feast day and listen to the prayers and the readings, and their teaching, their defining. I mean, you can read, you can know what these dogmas mean by looking at the prayers for that mass. If you, if you read through the opening prayer, the colic prayer, for example, for these Marian feasts, especially the Immaculate Conception comes to mind. Um, very clearly, I think almost in a sense, puts in prayer what the uh, the Holy Father declared by making the dogma, mm-hmm. makes it in prayer form. Yes, which is, is, is a critical point to make because the liturgies don't happen overnight. They also, before they reach a kind of maturity, they have had to pre-exist that moment mm-hmm. for decades, maybe even centuries. And we know that the Eastern uh, Church they had liturgical celebrations and feasts to the Assumption before the Western Church did. The Western Church adopted August 15th from the East Mm. as far back as the 6th century, so the 500s. So that's when it was sophisticated liturgies, which means that the the belief in the Assumption of Mary had to precede even the 500s. We have prayers, it's called the Subtuum, which are little Mm -hmm. that we found the prayers to Mary not necessarily her assumption, but what we get the memorari from. You know, never was it known that anyone who fled to thee for for, for help, for, for aid. We fly to your patronage, yes. the Holy Mother of yes. God, right? That's we see that, that's third century. So we're talking in the yeah. 200s, we are already seeing the the understanding of as Mary as a mediatrix and an you know, the, the omnipotent intercessor, as we would come to, to know her as later in the church's life. Yeah, the subtuum is one of my favorites. In fact, I think it's they found it in Egypt on a little yes, it was, it a, was little just a little piece of uh, parchment. That, yeah, that that was one of the earliest prayers to Mary we have. And so you have it's to very predate, short. And so that that means those people knew what it was, which means it had to predate even when it was written. So the assumption when we go back, it was the church fathers referred to this. Um, now there was a question about did she die. 
or did she fall asleep, hence the dormition, but right. we, we can't really get into that because the church has not pronounced whether she died. You have those who believe yes, they have, you have those who say no, she was just translated before death. I have an opinion. I'll share you my opinion. I think that it would be like our mother to imitate our Lord in his death too. Mm-hmm. She would want to die as her son did. But that's not dogma. What what we can be rest assured is that her belief in her assumption, an body yeah. and soul, it goes back very, very early on. Right. And a dogma has to be traceable to that. So no, the Pope can never just fabricate. Right. Uh, and I think that's so important that we understand this. We understand this in our Catholic minds and our cultures, this frenzy th- in our democratic society in America. That this is not the church. It doesn't work that way. So just understand that the popes just don't show up and just start defining new dogmas and, and um, totally inverting church teaching. Now, they can give opinions that are erroneous and give guidance that may be erroneous, but when it comes down to the deposit of faith, um, it's clearly protected. And the, the catechism that, that, that is our, the, the teachings of the church along with sacred scripture and the canon that's been defined by the church, that we have the, we, the deposit of faith is guarded by the church herself <clears throat> so that we would know if any deviations were occurring, the deposit of faith is protected and we know what it ought to be. So examples of defining new, you know, defining, redefining marriage or redefining the human person in the realm of gender uh, redefining what we believe about the saints, they're impossible because the, the liturgy's never shown it. Women's ordination as priests, the liturgies, the church, none of it's ever been believed, taught, practiced in any way. So it's not possible right. to redefine um, what we've always believed. That's right. And to do that, or at least to do that. I mean, you, if you redefine it, we call that heresy. I was going to say, you know, if you original did, thought is called heresy. Right. So we need to be confident that the Lord has provided the protection for the faith and always will. Okay, so what ended up happening is that uh, what Pope Pius did is about two or three years before he uh, wrote the definition, um, he sent out a questionnaire. And here were the questions he sent to his bishops. The first question, can it be, the uh, assumption, can it be defined as an article of faith? He was just asking his bishops that. Can this even be defined? Second question, is it appropriate that it be defined? And then the third question was, do you and your flock desire the definition? So and here's another check and balance on the Pope, even before he speaks ex cathedra. Let me consult the bishops first. Let me consult the bishops and the faithful first. And do you even want this? And uh, 1,232 bishops received the questions. 1210, 1,210 of the 1232 answered, yes, that it can be defined, it is appropriate to be defined, and that we desire a definition. Six doubted that it could be defined only because it had already always existed as doctrine. Hmm. And so they were a little confused about, well, if you pronounce a dogma, people may mistake it for being something mm-hmm. radically new. This is not new. Oh, we we'll always believe that. Interesting. Um, and then on top of that, there were over between 1849 and 1950, the year the assumption was defined, there were eight 
million petitions oh my goodness. from the Catholic faithful Wow! I for the Holy that. Father to define as dogma the assumption of Mary. Eight million. So most people also don't know this. You can petition Rome. You can petition the Holy Father to have some doctrines clearly defined as dogmas. And this has happened. Over 8 million petitioned the popes from 1849 to 1950. And that's what's called, and the popes do take this seriously, the census fidelium, the sense of the faith. Where is the spirit moving among the faithful? So all that together then induced the pope to say, okay, I believe the Holy Spirit is leading us Mm. to this end. Uh, By the way, I'll just say this as an aside. There is a push now, a movement happening. People have been petitioning the popes since the early 20s, I believe, Check me on the dates, but I know it's been happening for a good while to have a fifth Marian dogma, uh, fifth Marian dogma which would be co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate. And maybe we could devote a podcast to those three because people get thrown by the word co-redemptrix and the spiritual mother of all people. So, yeah, petition, petitioning the popes. And, um, and this Pope Francis right now is receiving petitions daily from people for any number of things. So anyway, all of this is kind of conspiring to the Pope saying, I think this is where the Holy Spirit is leading us. Now he can pronounce. Right. Now it, he makes the move. It does seem, though, too, that since Pius XII, the Holy Father, I mean, it's very rare for the Holy Father ex cathedra to do this, which means from the chair. That's what the ex cathedra means, that he, on his own authority as the Holy Father, can, but it's very, very rare. So we see that this, even with this, it's not, it's not like the Pope got up and said, I think it's time to do this, that he did petition and ask the bishops and consult that now this, you know, the the synod and through councils, so Vatican Council, for example, the Pope gathering with the bishops throughout the world, this collegial sense of we are, he's, he's a bishop of Rome, the Pope is, and so he's gathering with his brother bishops to, again, put forth and protect and clearly define church teaching, but usually through the manner of councils uh, and not just ex cathedra statements. So for the for the Holy Father to do anything like that now would be really surprising. It remains a possibility, but it also is not the way it seems the past Holy Fathers following Pius XII have proceeded. They have convened councils you know we have synod mm-hmm. on the synods are the way they're going and then of course at the end of the synod the holy father you know clarifies doctrine or teaches uh, uh what needs to be taught you know after consulting the bishop so uh the, the synods are not new uh but the topic of this synod is synodality so having uh, uh, the the nature of synod being I guess unearthed. Yes. So we'll see what happens with this. But again, all guided by all guided by the Holy Spirit. Right. I mean, and it would absolutely. I would think would always be a very very rare phenomenon. But you think about from 1849 to 1950, since the uh, definition of the Immaculate Conception in 1852, uh, eight million petitions. So people knew that the assumption was the logical scriptural conclusion to her Immaculate Conception, and so I think uh, Pope Pius XII clearly had this in mind now. Like this is this is an outflow, and the dogmas are interrelated, and we mm-hmm. can't escape that. And the church has always believed it. Um, so what what ends up happening here? And you can read this for yourself. Generous God, um, he goes through and shows how 
the the belief in Mary's assumption has always been in the early days of the church, including in the church fathers in the liturg- liturgy of the church. He even quotes uh, Saint John Damascene, one of the fathers. And one of the things that, even though it may not be explicitly mentioned in Scripture, but we, he, we're going to get to the Scriptures here in just a second, they're implicit. And there is such a thing as fittingness. It would be fitting that Mary was assumed bodily into heaven if she was immaculately conceived. It would be fitting that the Lord would do this for her if, if, if she were the mother of God. And he quotes John Damascene just as an example. John Damascene also uses the category of fitting. It was fitting that she, who had kept her virginity intact uh, in childbirth, should keep her own body free from all corruption even after death. It was fitting that she, who had carried the Creator as a child at her breast, should dwell in the divine tabernacles. It was fitting that the spouse whom the Father had taken to himself should live in the divine mansions. It was fitting that she who had seen her son upon the cross and who had thereby received into her heart the sword of sorrow which she had escaped in the act of giving birth to him should look upon him as he sits with the Father. And then finally he says, it was fitting that God's mother should possess what belongs to her son and that she should be honored by every creature as the mother and as the handmaid of God. And he goes on in other other situations here, but it would be fitting that the one who gave the word uh, as a person flesh would find her flesh redeemed from death uh, to be with him and to be united with him. So that that category of fittingness pervades the history of the church. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so what are the scriptures then? Well, uh, the, the, there are pre- pretty much four that uh, came to help that came together to help pronounce this dogma. First is Genesis three fifteen. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, tell the listeners, kind of what is Genesis 3.15 where God makes that prophecy uh, for the future Redeemer? Well, it's basically, you know, the words in condemnation to the serpent that I will put enmity between you, your offspring, and her offspring. Um, you will strike at his heel, or he will strike your head when you strike at the heel. Yes, Paraphrasing there, I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, that's a, but that's but a, that's a is, great, that's almost word for word. It so, is the it is the pronouncement that there is a woman um, who's going to bring forth an offspring, and the offspring um, will crush the head. Yes, the offspring, but between the woman and the serpent would be enmity, which in the Hebrew is total opposition. So you you see the early theologians reasoning like well how can there be total enmity between this woman and the serpent if the woman is under the curse of the serpent would seem to be the case that this woman would have to be exempt from the curse otherwise there could not be hostility the woman would be a subject of the serpent not his enemy mm-hmm. <laughs> and and nemesis so yes and of course what did sin bring into the world but death and if the woman that God pronounces who's going to give birth to the son is going to be at enmity with the serpent and will not share in the serpent's curse, then it follows that death could not redound to her. Mm, okay. So that, that also was there, very, very, very pivotal for the, uh, the early theologians. The second scripture was uh, Luke 1.38, uh, which is full of grace. He quotes somebody here um, in paragraph 28. For she was full of grace and blessed among women. She alone merited to conceive the true God of true God, whom as a virgin she brought forth, to whom as a virgin she gave milk, filing him on her lap, and all things she waited upon him. And uh, the point being here is that if you're totally full of grace, 
then that means you cannot have the presence of sin in you. Sin, of course, leads to death. It's the wages of sin, as Paul says. It's what's owed you if you sin. It could not be owed the woman. It could not be owed Mary because she was maximally full of grace. Another and, one, and God, and Jesus took the punishment of sin upon Himself. That's correct. Another scripture I used here is uh, Psalm one thirty-two. Interestingly okay. enough, um, the but I can't remember exactly which verse it is. But arise, O Lord, you and your you and the ark of your strength. Yeah, arise, O Lord, and take go to your rest. You, you and the and ark, the of, ark your of your strength. Tell us a little bit about how the church associated Mary with the Ark, meaning the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was constructed by Moses by the direction of the Lord himself, made of acacia wood, which is supposed to be just pure wood, covered with gold, again, purity. And, um, and within the Ark was to house specific items, specific objects, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, so the law, the manna from heaven, some of that was kept for the ark to remind the Israelites God's presence. It was the showbread or the bread of the presence. It was called the manna. And then Aaron's rod, Aaron's priestly staff, which is the priesthood. So you have the manna, the bread from heaven, the bread of the presence, the law, and the priestly staff. So obviously by now, who, who are we thinking of? But Jesus Christ himself, the high priest, the bread from heaven, and the law fulfilled, the mm -hmm. word of God. Okay. How uh, the ark is housing the presence of God, but the ark was carried because it was the presence of God with the Israelites. And they carried that ark with them into battle. Every time they did, they won. And uh, they even covered the ark with a blue cloth. Uh, and so that's a beautiful imagery because we do use blue. And I have a vestment that's white with blue velvet. Uh, de decoration on it for Our Lady, so I've, I've connect that with Our Lady. But then in Revelation, we have John saying, "I saw a vision in heaven. This uh, a woman. I saw the Ark of the Covenant opened." Well, that's what I was going to get to right yeah. next. Yes. So, but so we're is it two separate things? But uh, current Catholic scripture scholars are saying no. He's saying I saw the Ark. And it was a woman. Yes, yeah, so so the, the early fathers would read Psalm 132, which, of course, was written before the time of Jesus, many centuries before, but they would read it spiritually. Arise, O Lord, and go to your rest. Well, that is a spiritual, if I read that spiritually, that is, that is foreseeing the resurrection of Jesus. And then what does the psalmist see, say? Well, you go to your rest, Lord, in your resurrection, arise, and then you go with your ark to the place of your rest. And who's the ark? It is Mary, as you just said. And she was, she, so the ark was a type of Mary. And by the way, what did you do to the ark in the ancient Israel? You venerated it mm -hmm. highly. Right. You venerated the ark. Hence, we go back to Catholic veneration right. of, of Mary as well. And the ark is lost. That's never been found. And it doesn't matter because the, the new ark is Mary. Yep. Just like Christ says, I, he's the temple. You know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, meaning yep. the temple of his body. So the temple is no longer in Jerusalem as a building of stones. It is Christ himself. And so Mary is the new ark because she carried within her the new temple, the new holy of holies, yes. which is the Lord. Because in the temple in Jerusalem, there was the spot in the temple. It was a massive structure. But you had the holy of holies. Uh, and in there, where was what was kept in the holy of holies? The ark. Yes. And so that brings us right from Psalm 132 to what you have already mentioned, the other scripture, 
being Revelation 11, John sees the ark going to the place of rest. But then the next verse, the ark is the woman mm-hmm. in Revelation chapter 11, a clear reference to Mary because, and it's also a recapitulation of Genesis 3 because you have a woman and her offspring, and then you got a dragon or a serpent trying to destroy them. And uh, the woman eludes the, uh, the, the dragon as well. But there's the ark, and then she's there bodily <laughs> in heaven as well. Another scriptural reference, again, it has to be at least implicitly rooted in scripture. And not everything is explicitly, we believe as Christians, is explicitly referenced in scripture at all. And the most common example being the Trinity. There's no place in, in, in the New Testament that says, you know, God is, is, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity. You know, that word doesn't even appear anywhere, but it's certainly implicit in so many ways. And so, that becomes the, the, the scriptural justification for belief in that this is truly revealed of God. It's true, and it happened. Praise the Lord for that. Yeah, so kind of as we get to the, why does it matter, though, Father? I mean, if, because some of my Protestant friends, would, they can't trust this. They, they can say, they can believe everything we teach about Mary in so many instances. Yes, Mother of God, I, I can get on board with all that. But they believe she's a corpse, <laughs> Why is that a problem, and why do you think the assumption of Mary really matters to the faithful? Because it matters in the realm of belief in the resurrection of Jesus. The power of the assumption comes from the risen Christ. Right? I mean, he says, I'm going to, our bodies, we're going to have new glorified bodies. Well, that's what happened to her, but she didn't have to pass as we don't define her passing through to absolute death necessarily in order for that to happen that she ended her earthly life at a moment in time and was assumed body and soul into heaven so that this is god's desire for us and um, she didn't suffer the decay of the tomb because she had no sin right so the difficulty with believing the assumption because there's a difficulty believing in her immaculate conception then but but Gabriel's full of grace. If you really think right. that through, I mean, it's. But the struggle, the tension would be well. There's then there's also an issue. You can't be like I'm good with the immaculate conception because if you were, then it makes sense that she went straight to heaven, body and soul, without the decay of the tomb. Yeah. That she just is going to be in heaven, body and soul. Where's her body? Like if she's not, then where is her body? Well, it's buried. Well, why? Right. And because she, she didn't suffer the pains of original sin. Right. You know, she didn't suffer the corruption of the tomb. So why is her? Why does? Why would people believe there's a corpse of Our Lady out there somewhere? And I mean the 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 early doctrines of seeing in Mary a, a type of the Church. You know, where's the Church? She she already embodies what the Church is going to be, as you've referenced uh, Ephesian, holy and blameless, uh, a, a, an immaculate bride given to the Lord. So she would already she shows the Church the resurrection that all the Church is going to share in in the future. So she becomes for us a sign of hope uh, that, the, that, that what happened to her will happen to us uh, at the last day. And the church will be this immaculate bride, you know, body and soul uh, with the Lord. So I think the assumption uh, really is critical for us to ground ourselves in the future, the future that is to be. And she shows us now the future as it shall be. Um, one day. So kind of wrapping up here in paragraph 38, uh, Pope Pius XII says this, consequently, it seems impossible to think of Mary, the one conceived, 
who conceived Christ, brought him forth, nursed him with her milk, held him in her arms, clasped him to her breast as being apart from him in body, even though not in soul after this earthly life. Since our Redeemer is the son of Mary, he could not do otherwise as the perfect observer of God's law than to honor not only his eternal father, but also his most beloved mother. And since it was within his power to grant her this great honor, to preserve her from the corruption of the tomb, we must believe that he really acted in this way. Mm-hmm. And there's a beautiful uh, a quip from uh, Don Scotus, Scotus that, um, how does it go? It is God, God, oh God, I'm forgetting. It'll come to me. God could do it. It was appropriate God. Yes, God could do it. It is appropriate that God do it. God did it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then here he says, Hence the revered mother of God from all eternity joined in a hidden way with Jesus Christ in one and the same decree of predestination, immaculate in her conception, a most perfect virgin in her divine motherhood, the noble associate of the divine redeemer who has won a complete triumph over sin and its consequences finally obtained as a supreme culmination of her privileges that she should be preserved free from the corruption of the tomb and that like her own son, having overcome death, she might be taken up body and soul to the glory of heaven where as queen, she sits in the splendor at the right hand of her son. And then he finally pronounces it near the end of the document saying this, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ of the blessed apostles, Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Hence, if anyone, which God forbid, should dare willfully to deny or to call into doubt that, that which we have defined, let him know that he has fallen away completely from the divine and Catholic faith. Couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a beautiful illustration of, of how tradition can finally reach this maturity and we can have clarity as the faithful and and have confidence um, that Mary truly is in heaven as our advocate, as the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark of the Covenant, it was used in war, wasn't it? Mm-hmm, you know, right. She goes before us into heaven not to just be in this state of repose. She's going to battle with the church now. The Ark is going full before the, the, the army of God's people as the ark went before the other uh, army of God's people in the Old Testament and doing battles against uh, the forces of, of, of wickedness and evil. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, any closing words, Father? No, uh, just get ready for the beautiful day uh, of the Assumption. And may this, this podcast uh, help nourish our prayer and, and help us be ready to celebrate this this great dogma. Yeah, the great dogma. Well, thank you, Father, for your time. Thank you all for listening and watching. If you would like uh, more information about our parish, please visit our website at stmccg.org. And thank you so much for listening. On behalf of Father Ross, remember to stay on the ship of Peter. We'll see you next time. God bless.